I am Tony Cleese. I've been involved with the sustainable ag movement in the Carolinas since 1989. And um, primarily my role has been, uh, a lot of my work has been through the group called Carolina Farm Stewardship Association, or CFSA. Uh, I served on the board and got involved as a volunteer early on, helped uh, establish the organic certification program and uh, helped sort of launch you know, this sort of sustainable ag movement in the Carolinas. Um, I ended up being executive director of the organization for seven years, and uh, before that, helped uh, start the sustainable farming program at Central Carolina Community College in Pittsburgh, which was the first type of program of its kind at the community college level. And I also helped put together the National Organic Standards uh, in the late 90s when they were being developed. I worked at the national level on that. Since I left CFSA in 2007, I started a company called The Earthwise Company with my business partner, Mike Ortoski, and it's a community and agriculture development company. So we work on community and agricultural efforts. Probably the easiest way I can explain that uh, to most of you would be, think about instead of having a golf course in your neighborhood, you get a working organic farm. So that would be the ultimate goal of what we would try to create is reconnect people to their food systems in a very real way. So um, I didn't get a chance to see that other presentation, but when I saw that title, I thought, all right, great, I, got, I can really sort of bring it home to you guys, and what does it mean in the Southeast? So the presentation I'm gonna do is very similar to what I gave this morning, so those of you who saw this morning will get it again, um, but it does illustrate exactly where we are and where we're going with all this. So the first question is, you know, really what is a sustainable food system? Because it, Generally, we can define what sustainable means, but what we're not clear is what is a food system? We, know when we all sort of can see some pieces and parts, but we may not be able to get our head around it. And one of the things you'll note as we go through this, a food system is a very complicated thing, and it's hard to get your head around. And oftentimes, we might scratch on one piece of it, but we're really hitting lots of the other pieces over here. So it's a very complicated thing, it's difficult to get your head around, and hopefully when you walk away today, you'll have a better understanding of what a food system is and how can you create a sustainable one for where you live today or in the future. So first thing is, what is sustainable? And really, when you break that word down, it's the ability to sustain. We are trying to sustain something. Now, in the world of agriculture, we are trying to sustain an agrarian culture. So what is an agrarian culture? It is a culture or society that is built on the ability to produce food and stay in a location. So 10,000 years ago when we evolved into a agrarian species, it meant that we moved from a hunter-gatherer species that had to chase food around to the ability to grow food and stay in one place, which allowed us to establish cities, towns, governments, which is the root of our entire society. So what we have is an a culture based on agrarian systems. And what we're trying to sustain is that agrarian culture out into perpetuity, hopefully. It usually sustainability has three co core tenets to it. It's gotta be environmentally sound, economically viable, socially just or equitable, Many people sort of break that down into, it's a triple bottom line measurement. So currently the corporate structure is only based on returning 
economic value to shareholders. It's a single bottom line measurement of success. Part of what we're advocating here in this movement is let's look at triple bottom line ways of measuring success. We should look at the environmental or social impact at the, decision, the decisions we are making as much as we do the financial ones. So that triple bottom line mentality. So a little more detail, what is environmentally sound? It basically means we're trying to protect or enhance the natural resource base for ourselves now and also in the future. You know, I often tell people this, but it, sometimes folks just don't think about it this way, but it, it is unfair for us to turn over a planet to future generations that is worse than the one we got. So think about that. It is really our social responsibility to make something better than what we got. And we are in the opposite direction at this point. So what does natural systems mean? We're basically talking about soil, water, air, biodiversity. How do we ensure that that life support system that we all take advantage of every single day is still there in some reasonable fashion in the future? And the way that gets expressed in the marketplace, you start to see this triple bottom line thing show up itself is, what does this symbol mean right here? Recycling. So when you go to the store and you buy paper and you're looking for that symbol, why are you doing that? Why do you buy recycled products? They're good for the planet. They're good for the environment. They may not cost you less or more. You're making a decision about supporting a green product. I tell people all the time, you, the way you spend your dollar is more valuable than your vote. So if you buy products that meet your social, environmental, financial criteria, you're creating change. Some of the nonprofits in the world don't like me to say this, but the real solution is not to give your money to an environmental group, it's to buy products that meet your environmental criteria. If you took all that money you're donating to Sierra Club or some other group and spend it on organic food, you'd be, in a ba be an activist with every bite, is what I tell people. So you gotta eat, might as well be buying things that are good for the planet. That currently gets expressed in the marketplace as organic. Organic is an ecological production methodology and it's a set of standards that validate that claim for you in the market. So when you go to the store, if you see that organic label, it means I am buying products that don't pollute the planet. That's really what it boils down to. Economically viable. Producers have to be able to make a living at it. If you talk to a farmer these days, they'll tell you they're struggling. A little known fact, if you talk to any farmer who grows corn or soybeans or wheat, these are, these are all programs that are supported by the government with tax subsidies, tax dollars out of your pocket. They will tell you they make no money on growing their crop. Where they make their profit is the government payment. So think about that. We've got a food system where you can't be profitable unless you receive a government payment. Pretty crazy. That's not economically viable. And what we really should be shooting for is a system that doesn't require government subsidy doesn't take our tax dollars to do that. People tell me all the time, well, organic is more expensive. That is the real cost of producing that food. And, you, and I can tell you right now, the cost of long distance conventionally raised food will be more expensive than local organic in the not too distant future. 
So one of the things I want you to get across is the price of organic should not come down. What we need to do as a society is pay the real cost of the food. And that's what the organic marketplace is representing at this point. Obviously, we have to be able to afford it within the context of how we spend our dollar. In the U.S., the percentage of our dollar that we spend on food is about 9%. It's less than 10. In other developing nations, or excuse me, developed nations, England, France, etc., it's in the 20 to 30% range. So part of it is shifting your mindset about what's valuable. Think about it. None of us had cell phones not too long ago. None of us had cable bills. If you remember, the reason we were sold cable is it had no ads on it. We were supposed to be able to buy TV without any ads. What happened to that equation? So my point is, you will value whatever you want to value. And part of it is we've gotten ourselves stuck in food. It should be cheap, and it's all about how big it is, not how valuable it is. All right, socially just or equitable, quality food access by all, everyone. As somebody said earlier in our meeting, good food is a right, not a privilege. So how do we set up systems to make sure that everybody's got access? And I know everybody wants to beat up on Whole Foods and wants to beat up on organic. The bottom line is you can eat healthy going to Whole Foods and buying organic. There's a woman have a book up in the Triangle region where I'm from, it's called uh, wildly organic on $5 a day. Now she's buying more bulk, she's spending more time cooking, but she's able to afford it. So don't let this myth that just because it looks expensive doesn't mean you can't make it affordable within your budget. The food system should be community-based. It's got to be rooted in your community. It has to be thinking about all its impacts on the community. Fair wages and decent conditions for labor. All this immigration policy stuff, which ties our government into knots, is based on, the, based on the fact that we supposedly demand very cheap food and farmers can't afford to pay living wages to their labor. That's where that's all coming from. And I tell you, the first thing they'll tell you when you push back against that is, Americans want cheap food. So one of the things we have to do is change that dialogue in order to make sure that whatever system we're putting in place pays everybody a living wage. That's, that's what it should. For God's sake, at least our food should do that. And along those lines, how that's being expressed in the marketplace is fair trade labels. And fair trade looks at those relationships about who's benefiting and who's not uh, in that system and tries to validate Here's what's a fair trading relationship with the producer. So that's sustainable. Environmentally sound, economically viable, social, just or ec social justice or equity. You can think of it in the three E's. Environment, economic, equity is one way to look at it. Or think about it from the triple bottom line perspective. Whatever works for you. So what is a food system? And we're going to go through each one of these so you don't have to write them all down right now. Land, water, Farmers and labor, inputs, infrastructure, consumers in the markets, and the waste stream. So how did we come up with this? Um, when I was at Carolina Farm Stewardship, our mission was to create a sustainable food system. We could define sustainable, but we, haven't, we had not defined food system. And so we sort of broke it down. It said, what are all the pieces and parts? 
and how they all work together. And over time, they've just evolved into these sort of seven components. All right, land. So as a community, what you need is high quality soils of sufficient quantity to feed the population. So what does it mean, sufficient quantity to feed the population? I've done some research into it, and what I've been able to find is that for a normal American diet, which does include meat and protein sources, it's somewhere between a half and one acre per person, to feed a person, okay? A half to one acre. So if there's 50,000 people in this county, it takes somewhere between 25,000 and 50,000 acres to feed that population. So one of the things, one of the questions for you as you think about your local food system is, do we have the capacity to even do it? I did a survey, a study for the Wake County, which is where Raleigh is, the capital county of North Carolina. It quickly, one of the first things that became apparent is, Wake County, you better start talking, about your, talking with your rural neighbors because you ha do not have the capacity to feed yourself. And why? Because their planning department and the rest of their economy is driven on what they call highest and best use, and that's the actual language they use, which means development. The, it literally is codified in law that the highest and best use is developing the property. So that's part of the change of the dialogue. Maybe because that land is prime agricultural land and you can't create prime agricultural land from thin air. That's a very difficult thing to create then you've got to be thinking about how do we say that highest and best use of that prime ag land is agriculture. And part of the problem is the same place they want to build a house because the land perks. You can put a septic tank there. And so there's this direct competition between development and agriculture. And part of the dialogue is getting us changing the mindset about highest and best use. Agriculture is not a holding pattern for development, is another way to look at that. And just really quickly before, we don't, you don't have to go back, but one of the ways to get your government and development community to realize this is to do a cost of services analysis. And there's been, they've been done all over the country and generally what they show is for a residential development, for every $1 of tax revenue taken in on a residential development, the cost of providing services, fire, water, schools, roads, is like $1.20, $1.25. So building a house in your community is a losing proposition for your government. But they are totally opposite in their mindset about that. Agriculture is about 30, 30%. Uh, industrial or business is in the 70s and 80%. So residential is a losing proposition for your government. But the mantra is build it, build it, build it, and create tax revenue. But they're never comparing that cost of services versus tax revenue scenario. So get them to think differently around that. Water, sufficient quality and quantity to support the production of agriculture products. Quantity, vegetables need about 80 to 90, uh, they're about 80 to 95% water. When a, vet, when a acre of vegetables or any vegetable is in full production in the middle of summer, it's one inch of rain a week or one inch of water a week. That's about 27,000 gallons an acre per week. So a lot of people say, well, I want to do rain catchment. Well, it's not quite the quantity you need. It might be a good supplement, but it's not what you're going to need. 
a cow, a milking cow, 30 to 35 gallons a day. A beef cow, 10 to 15 gallons a day. So your question is, do you have enough water to support your food needs and all the other needs that water are pulled into? Industrial manufacturing, drinking water, flushing our toilets. So how do, is agriculture even at the table in the water discussion is one of your big questions. And so how do we make sure that we have enough quantity and quality? So we were talking a little bit in the previous meeting, you know, you've got some surface, good wa surface water sources. You've got a pretty decent aquifer at here. How long is that going to last? What's going to be the draw on it now in the future? And is it sufficient? Okay, next. Farmers and labor. So this is the people with the right skills and motivation to do the work. Because farming is very hard. It's a low margin business. You have to love to work hard. Um, you have to deal with the risk of nature, the vagaries of nature and weather. So it's a rare person who can be a good farmer. Um, so that's, you know, you've got to identify those people. I do a lot of education around training farmers. I find about 10% of my students end up actually being farmers. So out of 50, I'll get five of them to actually start a farm. Average age of the farmer in South Carolina is 58.5. In North Carolina, it's 59. So that's a general number across the country. So the question is, in 30 years, when all these people are retired, who is going to grow our food? I bet very few. Now this is probably a different crowd, but I usually ask this question, how many people know a young person going into farming? And oftentimes, it's maybe one or two hands. You guys might be a little better off. Does anybody know a young person going to farming? Okay, we got a good response in this room. But um, usually, it's very few because people don't see a good pathway to farming. Um, and then that other one is it is about the labor equivalent is about one person per acre. So you got to be thinking about how much labor do we need if we need 2,000, 5,000 acres of produce that means two to 5,000 people have working it. So, then you've got inputs. They have to be available, they have to be affordable, and they have to be appropriate to the system. So, good example of that is in the southeast, most of our seeds are, bred, uh, are not bred for our conditions. We used to have public breeding programs. We've stopped funding that as a society. So, who takes over the breeding at that point? Monsanto and Dow and Cargill. And I can tell you that he who owns the seed supply, he or she that owns the seed supply, owns the food supply. So public ownership of seeds and breeds is a huge societal issue that very few people are aware of. You sort of hear about it through the genetic engineering argument. And most of that is about ownership, not contamination issues. Breeds, if you're gonna, most of our breeding in our university systems now is for confinement animals, animals indoors. If you take an animal that is bred for those conditions and try to put them in outdoor conditions, that ain't gonna go well. So how are we breeding animals that do well on pasture-based organic systems is one of the big questions. Where's the fertilizer gonna come from? Is there money to come into the system? One of the things we're seeing now is um, there are more loans becoming available for young beginning farmers. 
um, but oftentimes there's no money there for startup operations. So how do you help somebody make it through that first stage? Information, you've got, got a pretty good information system here. The Southeast is definitely expanding and its awareness and knowledge base around this. Where's the fuel gonna come from? Is there equipment that's appropriately scaled to small scale or medium-sized operations? All those kinds of things you've gotta th think about in this system. Infrastructure, this is getting the food from the field to your plate. If you ever followed a food, an interesting thing to do is to go to the store and buy a food item and try to trace it all the way back to its point of origin and see how many pieces and steps it had to go through to get to your plate. Here's an interesting thing. I don't know if you guys know about this, but when you go into a grocery store, it is scientifically designed to make you act in a certain way. That sounds sort of weird, but it is. It's all set up. What's the first thing you see when you come in the door? The produce section. The produce section is, you talk to any grocery store, is a loss leader. It loses money. So why do they do that? They want, it to, they want the store to look like it's full of fresh, abundant products. But that is just to get you to buy all the packaged stuff in the middle of the store. It's a loss leader to get you to buy all the processed stuff. Where do they put the milk? They put it on the back side of the store, so you have to walk all the way through the store to get to the milk because that's usually what the main thing you're coming to buy. So that's another interesting exercise. When you go into the grocery store, think about why things are where they are. If you, bought, if you talk to any food manufacturer, they have to buy shelf space. They don't just randomly put the cornflakes here and the Fruit Loops here. The Fruit Loops are down here so the kids can see them. All the sugary stuff is at the bottom. All the healthy stuff is up here at the top. So it's all there for a reason. So part of being a food aware person is to be conscious about how you're being manipulated. Because you are, you're being channeled. It's all based on data that says you're supposed to act this way. So questions, I know that we've had some issues in the Carolinas about I'm a private, you know, I, I'm a small scale produce excuse me, poultry grower. We had a person in here earlier who does heirloom poultry products. She lives in the middle of poultry country, but there are no poultry processing plants that will take her birds to process them. So she has to drive her birds two to 300 miles to get processed because the local processing infrastructure is not there. So there's a good example. You've got to have local processing. The way meat happens now, hamburger, they, they grow the cows here till they're about 12 to 18 months old. They sell them into an auction. They get on trucks and uh, trains and they ship them to the Midwest. All the animals are fed on large scale feedlots, feedlots and fattened up and then processed out there and then they ship the meat back to us. And part of the reason why we have these huge meat scares now is because all the meat's being channeled through just a few processors. So my point being is if we had regional processors for all that, if we had a meat scare, it would only be 100 or maybe 1,000 people as opposed to a million people. So there's an example of how the infrastructure is missing in the system. We've got to rethink about how do we build, rebuild local infrastructure and how do we you know, make it affordable and workable within the context of everything. 
All right. We all eat. Supposedly at least three times a day. The bottom line is this is what drives it all. It is the, it is the driver for everything. So the important thing is you've got to be clear about what your market is. And your market has to be aware enough to know that your sustainable products are more valuable than stuff coming in from China or Chile or Argentina. So it's part of educating the folks about why it's different and that will lead to their willingness to pay more for the product. It, the, somehow the product has to, any marketer will tell you the way you make it in the world is you differentiate yourself. Your product is different. So part of what has to be done is differentiation of how this food is different or better or more valuable than the current food system. So there's some data that backs that up. The US Department of Agriculture keeps data on the nutritional value of food. And they've been doing it since the late 40s. If you look at that data, our food value, the nutritional value of our food has dropped between 40 and 60% in the last 40 to 60 years. So we have more food, but it's less nutritious. So it's back to this game of, if we just fool you that there's a lot of abundance by providing you volume, you won't get worried. But what's happening now is our food is staying very stable in price, but our health costs are going like this. So we've just traded cheap food for high health costs. That's all we've done. The money is gonna be the same. It's gonna come out of one of your pockets. It's either gonna come out in the form of tax dollars or subsidies, or it's gonna come out in paying the real cost of high value food, nutritious food. And then the final thing is waste. What every industry, regardless of what it is, every movement needs to take responsibility for its waste. That's part of our problem with today's culture is we just do business and we spew the waste out there and we forget about it as a business. We don't take responsibility for it. Some businesses are getting better at that, but that's a big challenge. So in the agricultural world, we need to think about the same thing. How do we keep there from being a waste stream in the first place? You know, before we had confinement agriculture, confinement livestock, the animals were on the farm and they distributed the manure. It wasn't even seen as a waste. It was all integrated in the system. When we separated the animals out and put them in confinement, all that manure all of a sudden became a waste. So part of the rethinking is how do you integrate animals back into the farm so that they're doing most of the work for you? And doing as they were intended to do. So, well, how does this relate to the Southeast? We say we want a local food system. Well, I like coffee and I like orange juice and we cannot grow coffee and orange juice in South Carolina. It's unless we want to grow it in greenhouses and heat them and that would be probably cost prohibitive. You think coffee costs a lot now? Try growing it in a greenhouse. So what this shows is the plant hardiness zone map for the southeastern US. And what that means is the minimum low temperature. So this is an illustration of how cold it could get, the minimum cold it could achieve. So we go from zone 11, which is way down here in the tip of Florida. And what that sees is sort of hard to see, but that means the lowest temperatures are generally between 40 
and uh, 45 degrees, lowest temperatures. So as we move up, you get into still not freezing. Up here, we have occasional frosts. So that means no citrus, no, no plant that would be killed or damaged by temperatures uh, below freezing. A lot of the tropicals will be damaged below 45. So that's why this region is important. If we want oranges and coffee and bananas, etc., we either have to go down into the Caribbean or we have to rely on our friends down here in southern Florida. If you go to the very top up there in North Carolina and all the way up into Virginia a little bit, you get into zone six. And so what the point there is, yes, it'll get a lot colder, but it means it stays a lot cooler in the summer. So let's go to that next slide. This is sort of the heat end of the scale and not the best illustration, but it was the best graph I could find. This is really telling you it's gonna get really hot, you guys. So um, just something to be conscious of, but you can see this is days over 90 degrees and these are number of days. So the darker the color, the fewer 90 degrees days, the lighter, the more orange the color, the more 90 degree days. So if you look up here in the North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia mountains, we're talking about a cool zone up there. And so you start thinking about, well, if we're going to replicate the California system, which has the climatic zones to move up and down the West Coast and provide us a year round supply, how can we do that in the Southeast? The average distance that food travels today is 1,500 miles from field to plate. That is the average distance, 1,500 miles. So can we get it into a 500 mile radius? Could we do that? So one of my uh, jobs in the past was I was the production coordinator for an organization called Eastern Carolina Organics or ECO. And it's a um, aggregator of local organic produce in the Carolinas to get it into the stores, create enough volume and consistency and supply. And one of my roles was production coordinator. So they would tell me what the demand was, and then I would go out and recruit the growers to grow that product to try to create a year-round supply. And what we found is that, it, this is just in North Carolina, but it's applicable to the Southeast, is that we could grow broccoli, lettuce, cabbage, kale in the middle of the summer up in what's called the Blue Ridge Plateau. It's this high plateau up there in the mountains of North Carolina, Virginia, because it stays cool enough in the summer. We don't get too hot. Nights cool down there. In the spring and the fall, we could grow it in the Piedmont. In the winter, December, January, and February, we can go all those cool weather crops here in the coast. So you begin to see that it's not too difficult to create a year-round supply of produce. It's gonna take coordination though. It, you can't just say, yeah, that's possible, because what'll happen is everybody will grow yellow summer squash you know, in the same window, and it'll all get packed in, and the farmers will get mad at each other because the price collapsed. So I know it sounds a little like social engineering and communism, but the bottom line is food may be a little bit too important to leave it up to the vagaries of the free market to be completely in control. So it means we need to think a little differently about this. Many people don't realize this. The tobacco program, 
hailed in North Carolina as the thing that kept a small family farm alive. That was the last program left over from the New Deal. During the Depression, food prices were going up and down, up and down, and it was making the public very restless. Remember, it's government's main intention is to keep food prices stable so you don't get too mad at them. The Arab Spring was launched by food crisis. It wasn't launched by just somebody getting mad. It was launched by this lack of opportunity and food in the system. So that program was, a bunch of programs were set up in the 30s to stabilize the price of food. What did they do? They controlled supply. If any of you know about the tobacco program, you had to have a tobacco quota. What that, what that meant was it was a license to grow tobacco from the government, and it was only a certain amount. You couldn't grow more than that. It was on all foods up until uh, the 40s, and then each of the programs got slowly phased out, and the tobacco was the last one. So what I'm saying is, in the past, our government has done, has taken moves to stabilize the food supply. Now, I'm not saying we have to do that. I'm just saying we have to think about food more strategically than just letting Walmart and McDonald's figure it out. I'm not beating up on that. I'm just saying allowing that to be completely at the control of them is, little, is risky. It's a risky scenario. One of the people who uh, was here earlier today said that uh, South Carolina is one of the most diverse agriculture places what, agriculture is one of the largest industries in the state, but only 10% of the food you consume comes from your state. 10%. So what's wrong with that picture? Why is that happening? So part of it is, after the 40, after World War II, refrigerated trucking, refrigerated train and trucking came into play. And the interstate food system, interstate highway system was built in the U.S. The combination of the interstate highway system and refrigerated trucking allowed us to shift our agricultural production to the easiest place on the planet to grow it. And as long as oil or fuel is cheap, that system works. We are suddenly coming to the point where oil and the energy supply is not cheap anymore. So what is happening in food, the food world is they're starting to say that it, it has more to do with the local distribution system than it does with where's the easiest place to grow it. The Central Valley of California is where 30 to 40% of our produce comes from. The Central Valley of California is the, almost the most perfect place on the planet to grow food. Temperatures, soils, everything is just about as perfect as you could get. The problem is that system is under extreme stress right now. They've over-applied fertilizers, they've over-applied chemicals, and the water to grow all that produce is under high demand from all the cities. And so agriculture and urban development is directly butting up against each other. So my point is, is that the system that provides 30, 40, 30 to 40% of our fresh produce is on the edge of collapse. Recently, Asheville has attracted two large West Coast breweries to move uh, east. Why are those companies doing that? 
because it's costing them too much to ship that beer across the country. So business is starting to tell you that that old system of shipping food all over the planet is no longer making financial sense. So what do you do as a region to think about that? You start thinking, we'll get back to Ella in a minute. Um, you start thinking about, well, what is the demand? We've got the I-85 and I-95 corridor here. We're talking millions and millions and millions of people. How do we as a community figure out how to feed those people? So the first question might be, okay, Richland County, how much broccoli do you eat? How many hamburgers do you guys eat here? How much milk do you drink? And once you've got those numbers, then you can start reverse engineering that back. You can say, in order to grow one cow, the cow and that cow is gonna provide X amount of beef. That cow requires approximately one acre of pasture and approximately X amount of water and X amount of supplemental feed. So once you know what the demand number is, you can design a system for meeting that demand is really what it boils down to. Yes, that's engineering, but that can be done through business. So what we did in North Carolina is, you know, with the Eastern Carolina Organics, we surveyed the market. The market people who did that work came back and said, okay, here's the 52 weeks of the year. We need 50 cases this, during this window. We need 100 during this window. We need 75. All of a sudden, we know what the demand is. We know the total acreage we need, which then tells us how much seed, fertilizer, water, labor, irrigation, etc. So one of the things to think about is we can create a southeastern regional food system. I believe it can be a southeastern organic food system. We can do that. It will take us honestly staking ourselves out on what we're willing to buy and what we're willing to pay for it. And that can be done in a very transparent way. One of the reasons why Eco works so well it's an 80-20 split between the farmer and the distributor. The grower always makes 80%, and the 20% is just there to run a business. That is a transparent margin, because the way most produce companies work, they buy low to the farmer and they sell high to the consumer. That's how they make their margin. So let's change that game. Let's set up a different structure that has transparent margins in it. So everybody knows what the deal is. I feel better about buying a product from them because I know 80 cents goes into that farmer's pocket and somebody's not out there, you know, making a ton of money off the back of somebody else's blood, sweat and tears. So the bottom line is we've got to think differently about this. And remember, it's so easy a baby can do it. So it's not, it is difficult uh, in all seriousness. This is really who it's about. It's Ella's children and her grandchildren who are gonna really benefit from the work we do today. We're setting in motion a food supply that will be good for the consumer, good for the farmer, good for the planet. That's really what we want in the big picture out there. So questions, thoughts, comments? Got about 15 minutes if anybody has a particular thing. Yes, sir. Absolutely. That's a good question because I've, we've tried to crack that nut before and 
the ed education system in the past few years has been oriented towards passing tests. And what I hear from those teachers is it's all about teaching to the test. Now that may have changed in the past couple years, but that's the way it was a few years ago. So can we figure out how, I mean, when I, I teach farming all the time, and people are always shocked how much math is involved to, to, to be a successful farmer. So maybe it's in the math class, we're teaching people how to write enterprise budgets or something along those lines. I think we'll somehow have to tie it to that testing regimen though. Um, on the other side of that equation, I think there's a, the best way to teach about food is to feed people, is to get people around the table and, and eating the type of food that you're trying to get them to buy into. We had a person from University of South Carolina Food Service here earlier today, and he was basically saying that that's what it's about. You gotta get people to taste it, you gotta tell the story behind it. Um, and so part of that is collecting people around food. Part of the challenge there is our schools, uh, their food budgets are operating on a low bid equation. So as parents within that structure, uh, it may be important for you to stand up and say, we think it's worth spending an extra 10% on that food in order to support local organic farmers and teach kids about you know, food. So it's a, tough, it's a tough one, but I think there's opportunity there. And you're exactly right. Food awareness, that, that's what I'm shocked about, really. I've been in this since 1989. What's been just wonderful is the past five years, food awareness has just exploded. It's just gone off the charts. And so part of our job is to help people understand it better and all the decisions they have to go into it. So. Along the same lines, Tony, uh, what's your experience with the, uh, the rise or fall of student gardens and things like that at the high school and the lower level? I think that's great. I think, you know, it's very important. I think it is. Where the challenge is, is, you know, as the students move on and the teachers move on, is their institutional capacity to carry it forward as people change. So yes, I think it's a wonderful thing. Um, it's just, you know, gardens aren't things that you can, that are generally timed very well to the school calendar. It's the middle of the summer when most of all that stuff is happening. So it's, it's challenging. I think it's a good thing. I can't tell you how many stories I've heard of people saying, you know, you ask a five-year-old where food comes from and they say McDonald's or the grocery store. Or you take them out on the farm and they, you know, they're harvesting yellow squash and they say, look, they're harvesting bananas. You know, so there's a, there's a real disconnect between the realities of food and what children learn today, absolutely. And so those school gardens are a way to incorporate that. I think what might be a more interesting approach would be to say there are farmers in our neighborhood and each class is gonna adopt a farmer. So this is my farmer. And you know, I've got a little button that says, I love my farmer. And we, you know, the farmer comes in and gives a talk, shares some produce, gets people excited. Maybe there's a little teaching, uh, cooking demo. And once a year, the kids take a school trip out to the farm. I think that might be a little better way to teach that without putting an extra burden on the school system or the teachers who are already way overburdened. Yes. Mm -hmm. and as a mom, I'm tired of um, cookie dough, candy bars, yeah. mm -hmm.
Great. Brilliant. Very nice. The gentleman who was here from USC said, the important thing for us all to realize is the millennials is the largest generation coming through our society in a long time. And what we have to do is capture them at their high school and college years so that they then become good food consumers the rest of their lives. So that's in part talk, addressing that. Mm -hmm. It is partially um, tied to economy of scales. And that part of that is, you know, what you really want to do is approach it like a business. So the first thing is, what's the demand? So could you get Whole Foods and the restaurants who all want to support local producers to say, we will take five cows worth of beef a week, whatever it is. And then you go to the processing people and say, what will, how much capacity do you need to run through this system in order for us to get a whole day of your time? And then you go to the producers and say, can you guys consistently bring in five cows that are of uniform quality for this system to thrive? So it, what our problem is, is we're sort of passive. We stand outside and say, well, it should just happen. It, it's gotta be strategically planned and approached. It can't be just random and wait for it to happen. Um, so part of it is it's all being driven by all of us who eat, and we all eat. So part of it is we have to stand up and demand something different. And that's, that's what will drive it all. Um, there are also regulatory hurdles, I can tell you that. Some industries are, would not be happy that a lot of small-scale producers would come into it. And so there are protective regulations that are set in place to sort of squash that down. And that sounds a little bit like a conspiracy theory, but I deal with it all the time. You all can get raw milk here in South Carolina. We cannot get it in North Carolina. I don't know what happens to the cows when they go across the border, but I don't see why all the people in South Carolina are getting sick. You know what it is? It's the dairy industry. They don't want local producers to have access to that market. So they keep the pressure on not allowing the legislature to pass to break, uh, change that law. It's unfortunate, but it'll only change until enough of you guys say that is garbage and you are going to give us the free will to buy whatever we want. I agree. There is not a food nirvana, unfortunately, um, but there are pieces and parts around the country. And so what I would hope that you would do is you'd look at these seven components and you'd go out and you'd say, Where, where's the best example within each of these things? So where's the best land policies we can find? Where's the best water policies we can find? Where's the best farmer training system? Because you're going to pluck from different locations. I can say the state of Vermont has done a tremendous job um, of thinking about this on a broad scale level and putting together programs that address it on multiple levels. 
Um, so that would probably be my best shining example. Um, I'm biased, but I think North Carolina is doing a pretty good job on multiple levels too, um, but there's a long way to go. Lots of things that need to change. So any other thoughts or comments? Yes, sir. Great question. That's exactly where the group that met before you ended up. Who is going to be the leader to take this entire food system forward and make it happen? And so that's a great question. What, I, what we heard from the group is the number one priority was developing an aggregator for local product to be more accessible to the buyers, the restaurateurs, the Whole Foods, the Rose Market, whatever they are. Because those guys don't have enough time to deal with 20 different farms. They want to pick up the phone and make one phone call and get it. So that requires an aggregator who's friendly to the farmers and the consumers. And so what I encourage them to do is, those of you all sitting there saying you want to buy all this stuff, give them some numbers. Give, give us some numbers. It's this amount of beef. It's this amount of lettuce. It's this amount of carrots. Here's the high and low price, so we have an average. And once that information's on the table, you can determine, do you have enough volume to launch a business? Because what we found, if you're going to use the 80-20 percentage chain, uh, exchange of the margin, that means you've got to run the business on 20%. So what is the volume of business that will cover, where 20% will cover operating expenses? It's about a half a million to three quarters of a million dollars. So if it's a half a million, 20% is $100,000. So it's $100,000 to pay for the fuel, the cooler, the staff, the marketing, the internet, blah, blah, blah. That's probably a little low. It's probably more closer to 750. So the first question is, have we identified enough demand to cash flow that business? And then if there is, then you start working backwards. Okay, they've told us they want X amount of hamburger. Where's that gonna come from and how's that gonna get processed? At a price point that makes it work for everybody in the chain. So, does that answer your question? There's nobody in charge yet. <laughs> That's really. And if you'd like to be Plenty of opportunities to lead. Dave, did you have a question? Comment? Okay. There was another. Yeah, me too. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, what I mentioned earlier is, you know, my wife and I are busy professionals. We don't eat as well as we'd like to. Um, what I've often heard that, um, you know, you can bring a farmer's market to a, you know, low-income community, but they may not have the time or knowledge on how to prepare kale or arugula or whatever it is. And so I would think that the opportunities there are for somebody to be creating meals ready to eat. So if I could 
uh, go to a location where I could buy uh, lasagna that was ready to go in the oven and I knew all the materials in that lasagna were made from local and organic materials, I would be ecstatic. So that's a business opportunity. Um, it may be the same thing in other communities, it might just be different price points for those entities. Is that what you were yeah, looking for? Absolutely. I think it just has to do with, you know, the system. Um, and part of it is, you know, revaluing once again. We've just got to get people out of this mindset that food should be really cheap and that it has, you know, the idea is to get as much for as, you know, little price as possible. And that, that's just a tough sell. And it's just going to take a while. I think what's going to happen is that the conventional long distance food will become more expensive than local organic. So I don't see the price coming down on food in any way. I see the realities of food costs becoming more apparent to everybody. So just to kind of follow up on that, you often say conventional versus local organic. What about local less organic or somewhat conventional or somewhere in the middle there? I think it has to do with what will the market support. So whatever the market's telling you, if, if, the, if one segment of that community says, I don't care whether it's organic or not, I just want it prepared, then that would be a different market opportunity than somebody who says, I want strictly local organic. And I would probably pay more for the local organic because, at this point because that's a hard, harder thing to source. Not as much volume, it's a supply and demand equation. But I can tell you, when I'm standing at the grocery store, when I have my farmer hat on, I'm really happy about those high prices, as long as I'm getting a good share of that. When I have my consumer hat on, I'm like, ooh, boy, that's a little expensive. So try to put that other hat on when you're standing there at the store. You know, and the, the bottom line, whether you believe in organic or conventional or sustainable, it's all about market. What is driving the market? And Everything that I've seen is the organic market continues to grow larger and larger and larger, and the conventional market is just doing this. So as a farmer and looking at where my business opportunities, I'm going to go to this one that's growing, growing, growing. And so I don't try to get too much into the philosophical argument. It's really what's the driver, the driver's market. So. It's kind of a political economy question. Okay. Mm-hmm. We're hearing it from a lot of uh, kind of mainline uh, grocery retailers now, more so than I think we have in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, we definitely hear it in, from the proprietor-owned businesses and that sort of thing, more local businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, you hear it from uh, even, even Walmart has a program uh, these days. And I've heard them present before at the vice presidential level where they're doing this to try to reduce transportation costs. So if all this is true, businesses and organizations stand to benefit, including the consumer. Who is it that's not on board yet that needs to be convinced to make these transitions possible? I think it is boils down to the, um, the price point. Um, I think it boils down to we've got to be more transparent about what it costs to produce food so that we can make a better argument for charging a higher price in the marketplace. I think that's what's stopping it from growing rapidly now, is that there's so much food out there that is so cheap 
um, and subsidized in many ways, and the costs are externalized in many ways, that people are lulled into this sort of false sense of security. And the more food scares we have, the more fuel prices impact the cost of food, we'll see that shift. But right now, it's too easy not to act. It's too easy to pull through the McDonald's drive-through. It's too easy. So we've got to figure out how to counterbalance that in some way. And that's either changing the value equation to get people to realize that there's different value in different types of food, or that other food becomes less easy and more expensive. And that'll happen. And part of it is just waiting for that shoe to drop. And while you're waiting for it, you're building the infrastructure to be in place. So when we hit that point, it's not jumping out the second story window, it's walking down the stairs. Um, because we will, I mean, you talk to anybody out there, food is a huge issue. I mean, just because of population growth. Um, they're expecting, you know, we have to double the food supply in the next 30 to 50 years in order to meet needs. So that alone will tell you something's got to change. And if you factor in high fuel, the peak oil, which means oil's going to run out, and climate change, you know, it's, it's going to happen. So you just have to figure out what are you doing to prepare your community. Well, you mentioned transition culture earlier. Um, transition culture is this movement out of England that says, look, we know change is on the horizon. Whether you're a believer in climate change or people or whatever, there's change is going to happen. And so how do you help your community think through mitigating the impacts of those outside external forces? And part of that is relocalizing the system. So that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to relocalize the food. You think about, uh, what is it, Maslow's hierarchy, food, water, shelter. Let's start there. Do we have appropriate food, water, and shelter as a community? Energy would be the next thing in that. So I, I think what you have to do is you have to, build, you have to start by building it with the highly motivated people who are already there. So that is the restaurants, the Whole Foods, the, the burgeoning sustainable ag movement. Those people are motivated. I was told, you know, as soon as the Whole Foods store opened here, the parking lot was full. So that tells you people want it. So start there and build the system. And then when the rest of the system starts to change dramatically, you'll be there ready to expand and capture it. But I don't think we're going to change people's attitudes in the current landscape. It's just too easy. So, and too cheap. Yeah, it's one two five million. It's somewhere between one and five. Oh, yep. I'm glad I got that clarified. Yep. Wow. And is that taking into consideration I think that's just replacement value. So it's a great opportunity there. Right. Well, we basically have to make farming a desirable career. And so there's lots of work that needs to be done there. Yes, sir. Um, you're, you're talking a little bit about transparency, and then there's um, some kind of questions about um, maybe organic versus local. And, mm -hmm. and so all of this makes me think about labeling and how, mm -hmm. we, and how we do market the food. Absolutely. Are there, are there sort of interesting examples in North Carolina where people have given, you know, the idea of local or maybe the idea of sustainably grown, but it might not be 
certified organic or mm -hmm. where they've labeled food so that when it does reach Walmart or some other like mm -hmm. grocery store where people might not normally be thinking about that, mm -hmm. they see see some label that makes sense to them or well, I think you want to look at the different things you're trying to deal with. If we look at those three things of economic, environment, and social, right now the most recognizable label in, in environmental is organic. There are some other labels that are sort of dancing around the edges of that, but that's the only one that seems to have any real credibility. There's a certified naturally grown label, but they're using the organic standards. They're just not going through the process, so it's still tied to that system. Um, you know, humane, what's that? It's an organization out of New York City, and it's sort of a peer-to-peer -peer process. I have a lot of issues with it, but the bottom line is uh, it's, it's an attempt to validate ecological production in the marketplace. So then there's um, local labels. So Appalachian Sustainable Ag Project, you've probably seen that uh, bumper sticker, local food, thousands of miles fresher. That's their whole campaign. Um, the uh, Piedmont region of North Carolina has a Piedmont grown uh, region. I think in the uh, low country, there's a low country first kind of label going around. So those are sort of regional levels. Um, the fair trade is where I see some of these social things getting played out. So I don't think it's one label. I think it's basically um, a series of labels that give people different layers that they feel comfortable with. And what we talked a little bit about earlier, do you know what quick reference or QR codes are? Little square codes that you can, got an app, you look at these over on the wall here. You can see everyone's got a little QR. So if you had your smartphone and you had the right app, you can take a picture of that QR and boom, up pops all the information on that farmer. So I would say in the not too distant future, labels won't be as important. What'll be important is direct access to information about that farmer. So if you go to the grocery store, there's the shelf talker, you click on it and it shows you the farmer and here's their kids and their dog and you know they started on this date and if you punch in the number on the shelf there, it'll tell you what date this product was picked. I also see retailers going towards nutritional scoring. So Whole Foods is using this thing called Andy, A-N-D-I, which basically is saying kale is very nutritious so it has a score of 900 whereas you know potatoes might be 200 so it helps people start making decisions and you know really what that's about if you want to get into economic theory um you know the adam oh, excuse me um what is the guy who wrote the adam smith basically said that um the thing that makes the market move is the unseen hand in the marketplace you probably heard that referred to before. The unseen hand is really what he's basically saying is everybody's going to act in their own self-interest. It's a selfish response, which sounds bad to some people, but the bottom line is we're hardwired for keeping ourselves alive, self-reliance. So um, people are going to make self-informed, self-reliant decisions, self-oriented decisions. They will make intelligent self our self-informed decisions if they get good information. If they get bad information, they make bad decisions. And what currently the, the huge advertising industry that sells us products sells us lies and falsehoods. And so part of it is getting outside that and saying the real information is this. And the reason why we need third-party evaluators is nobody trusts each other anymore. And so that's where these labels come in. The organic label was actually started by the organic industry to protect 
the word. Because think about words like natural. It means nothing. Fresh, yeah, fresh from Argentina, sure it is. <laughs> so those words have zero value. And what organic has just tried to do is say, no, this word has value, it means something, there's a federal standard, and there's a backup, certification backup system so that that word doesn't turn into mush and has market value. So it's, it's complicated, but I think it, you're on the right track. It's all gonna be about more information at the point of purchase as we go down the road. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.